As we come to Matthew 21 this morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming, I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, pick up this, this theme of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament by asking you as we start to join me on a plane ride. So we're going to take a plane trip this morning, and I'm going to be your captain. Here we are. And uh, I'd like to thank Chris Wright for the illustration of the plane, although he's not immature enough like me to actually buy goggles. But here we are. This is the flight that we're going on this morning. And uh, here's our flight plan. I wonder if you can see it. Here it comes. We're going to start in London today. And then we're going to fly back to Jerusalem in 33 AD. And we're going to join our text in Matthew 21. And you're thinking, is he really going to wear this for the whole sermon? I promise you I'm not. And then we're going to fly back another 500 years to Jerusalem in 540 BC to Zechariah the prophet. Uh, speaking to the returning exiles from Babylon. Then we'll fly forwards, uh, back past Jerusalem in 33 AD, back past London, and to the judgment day ahead, to the return of Jesus, which is the context for Psalm 118 that is, uh, uh, that is here. Hosanna means save us. And that, that we'll see when that will fully and finally happen. So that's the flight plan, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you can uh, bear that in mind. Uh, last week, if you were here, Michael Andrews said to us, as we see the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament, we witness the wonders of the past, we see our present more clearly, and we marvel at the certain future ahead of us. Let's pray as we start. Father, we pray this morning that you would enable us to see the great Bible story that we're in. We pray that we'd be deeply engaged and it would change our living and our thinking as we see Jesus the sovereign Lord, and yet the servant of all. Amen. Well, we're beginning in London with the flight plan, and I want to ask you this question. How do you measure power? So as perhaps we're on the plane and we're looking at our little screens, we'll watch the following people coming up. There'll be Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and how do they measure power? There'll be Zelensky and Putin. How do we measure it? Maybe it's the number of people we command. Perhaps it's the wealth at our disposal or the ability to say something and immediate action would be taken. Wouldn't that be amazing? But I pretty much guarantee this. If you were making up a story about a king coming in power to his city in the finale of his life, I very much doubt whether you would have dreamt up Matthew chapter 21, ladies and gentlemen. Because we, as we take off and we now go from London and we circle back to Jerusalem in 33 AD on that Palm Sunday, at first sight, there seems to be very little of kingly power or great authority about the episode. If you were Jesus' publicity manager, you'd be pulling your hair out. And yet, for those who have eyes to see, Jesus reveals himself as the king the Old Testament promised and the one who would come to save and rule. So Matthew is getting his camera out. He's taking a picture for all of us. And the question, can you look down, is in verse 10. Can we see as we look down in verse 10? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is he? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Do you see, it's interesting. They've got his name. They've got his role. They've got his home. And yet they're so blind. Well, as we look at this uh, uh, story now, we've got to understand, again, as we look at the Old Testament, that, ladies and gentlemen, this is an enacted parable here, Palm Sunday. 
So the question is, with those who've got eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to believe, can they see the significance? In a sense, we have a dramatic act of uh, uh, in the in, in in the sort of the same genre as the prophets in the Old Testament, where words with the prophets in the Old Testament are to no avail. People have shut their ears and, and their eyes. Uh, there's indifference and incomprehension. So the prophets act out what's happening. So do you remember what Hosea did? He married the prostitute, the unfaithful Gomer, and he said to Israel, this is what you're like. What she does to me is what you do to God. Or Ezekiel packs his belongings for exile. And he says, this is where sin's going to take you, into exile. And so Jesus, the promised king, rides into Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a deliberate act of symbolic self-disclosure. But can you see it? Uh, And first, we staggeringly see, as we look down, the king who controls his destiny, verses 1 to 3. Let's have a look down. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. In the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, uh, 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 as they depicted uh, ancient Israel, there were always two reasons you went to Jerusalem. Why did you go to Jerusalem? You went to enthrone the king, to pay him homage, and you went to meet God. So to offer sacrifice, to celebrate his love, his salvation, his covenant, to rejoice in the privileges of being the people of God. But could the disciples who walked with Jesus from Jericho see when they arrived in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, they would be witnessing the most important coronation the world had ever seen. Talking about meeting God and seeing the king, this was the ultimate, but could they see it? Or could they understand the disciples that they were about to live through the most important week in the history of the world? A week that would not only change human history, but shape human destiny. Would the crowds bunging the streets of Jerusalem realize that they were soon to be within sight and touching distance of the Passover lamb himself? They're coming to Jerusalem, but can they see who they're going to meet? Or maybe that's not what we see here. I mean, surely on the face of it, Jesus uh, is at the whim of the crowds. That's what many would say, wouldn't they? The liberal commentators would say it. So within five days, their shouts go from, you know this, Hosanna, to crucify him. I mean, surely his fate is sealed by Judas's betrayal, by the religious authorities' jealousy of him uh, and plan to kill him, or by Pilate's weak capitulation to the crowd's demands. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And the answer Pilate gives himself is, well, I'll have him killed because I've got to satisfy the crowd. My ambition demands it, and I can't risk negative news getting back to Rome. So he's going to have to die. I mean, surely Jesus is just an insignificant local minor celebrity caught up in the Roman machine in a much bigger game. So he dies because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. But actually, ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be further from the truth. For those with eyes to to see, he is controlling and orchestrating everything. So no one takes his life from him. He willingly gives it up. I mean, think about it. He rides into Jerusalem and he comes in on a donkey. So what's he saying? He's saying, come and get me. 
I mean, if you walk, if you go to war on a donkey, you're asking to be killed. And the opening four words do we see, they are packed with resonance, therefore. Can we see the first four words of our passage? As they approach Jerusalem, they tell the story. For this isn't mere geographical interest. This has significance. The king is coming to Jerusalem. You're going to meet God. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, and again, we've just got to see Jesus controlling it all. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, the word is, it's necessary that. I've got to go. I've got to go and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus knew that there would be a time when he would go to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus teaches the same thing again in Matthew 20 and verses 17 to 19. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. There it is again. He's in control. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said, we're going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Ladies and gentlemen, he is predicting what is going to happen and taking deliberate action to go to Jerusalem to die. Do you see, he is in control of the situation. And so as we get to our passage, as we get to verses 21, uh, cha- chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. Now, we're not told how Jesus got the donkey, whether it was divine foreknowledge or prearranged, But the point is, the king is in charge. He controls his own destiny. He's deciding exactly how he will enter his city. And indeed, in verses 12 to 15, he goes to the temple, his father's house, and he does some housekeeping. That's what the king does in his city. He cleans it up, and nothing can thwart his plans. So as Luke the doctor in in the Acts of the Apostles looks back on this week, He records the disciples' interpretation of what's happening. And he writes of the sin of Pilate, the sin of the chief priest, the sin of the crowd, the sin of Herod. And they all conspire to kill Jesus. And yet, the Lord, through Luke, concludes, Acts 4, 27, 28, hold on to your seats. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, hold on, everybody. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to be very, very powerful to have your enemies do your bidding while acting against you. That is control. How do you measure power? You have your enemies do your bidding while acting against you. And the Bible says, this is how we are to think about God, ladies and gentlemen. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And David Jackman, in his splendid little commentary, reflects this. So this is what we read of these verses in Matthew. David Jackman writes, As Matthew's account of the last week of Jesus' life moves towards its climax, there is never a flicker of doubt that he is in complete control of all that is happening. We are never to imagine the Lord Jesus as a helpless victim, swept away by an irresistible tide of human opposition. 
He is always the sovereign Lord, working out everything according to his Father's will, the master of every circumstance. And this is the, con- con- the application for our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus was in total control as he, he rode into Jerusalem on the cross, the question we have as believers is simply this. Is he in control today? That's the question. For you see, the Bible insists that we're on the plane. It's the same flight we're in this story. And as the early church looked back to that week on Good Friday, they said, well, if he was in control on Good Friday, he's in control today. Now, don't ask me at the door how that works out in your life. Please don't. I don't know. But it's been great just to have a series in Hebrews 11 where we've seen the heroes of faith who did not know what was happening, and yet they kept obeying and they endured. I don't know how it works out. But if he was in control on Good Friday, he's in control today. We're in the same plane flight, and the Lord weaves together the circumstances of our lives so that, now what is his objective? Ladies and gentlemen, we grow more like Christ. John Stott, in his final public sermon, 2008 in Keswick, he said the great need of the church is Christ-likeness. And Romans 8, verse 28, Uncle John said that was the pinnacle of Scripture. All things work together for good. What is our good? That we're conformed to the likeness of Christ. But I don't know how this is working out for you. Life can be so brutal. Brother or sister, I don't know what you're facing at the moment. It may be very, very difficult. Severe difficulty. You may be in Psalm 88. The darkness is my closest friend. For we live in a a broken world that is subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. Please don't think we're naive about this as we say these words. But that does not mean Jesus is not in control. If he was in control on Good Friday, he is in control today and Sunday is coming. But the issue is, can you trust him? I mean, he might be all powerful. But can you trust this sovereign king who is in control to also be good? Can you trust him to lead you? And that leads us to our second point, the king who comes in humility. Well, it's Passover time, which is traditionally a time of nationalistic fervor. So the Romans would have gone from yellow to red alert. And if you were one of Jesus' followers, as at last the Messiah is coming to his city to claim his throne, the throne of David... What would you be expecting? Surely at last, if Jesus was truly the Messiah, he would use his supernatural powers to deliver the Jews politically and socially from their Roman oppressors. That is obvious, is it not, that that's the key need. So at last, it's judgment day for Rome. No wonder they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the world. What they're shouting is, What do we want? Vengeance. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Vengeance. When do we want it? Now. And so what do they want for Jesus? Well, they want a crown, a robe, a sword, and a war horse. That's what they want. Vengeance. And you would want the modern equivalent, of course, of a military parade. I mean, that's what you want. This is about power, isn't it? The king has come. But that's not Jesus. And that is not Palm Sunday. 
Because this is what happens. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So Jesus comes into the city, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey. Why does he do it this way? Why not ride a war horse? Well, now we have to fly back 500 years on our flight. We're not going to understand this unless we fly back from eternity to eternity as this gospel story. And we're flying back 500 years, Matthew 21, 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you see, Zechariah predicts a style of kinship which will be non-military. Indeed, his prophecy in around 540 BC to, to the steady stream of exiles returning from Babylon speaks of a kingship which is gentle. Indeed, the prophecy goes on to say that this king will bring peace and touch every human life. So the style of kingship will be the style of the donkey, not the white charger. It will be the style of poverty, not of power breaking. It will be the style of meekness, not grandeur. And of course, this is an enacted parable. So, and this is wonderful. I didn't see this until I'd been preparing, but, but Jesus now models as he rides into Jerusalem what he has taught his disciples in chapter 20. See it here. Jesus calls them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Do you know Uncle John, John Stott said, every Christian must underline those words in their Bibles and highlight them in red. Not so with you. (laughs) Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And here Jesus introduces a whole new style of leadership to the world. His leadership was to be exercised not by coercion, but by service. John Stott writes, worldly leadership is a pyramid with the leaders on top bossing everyone around. But Christian leaders are to be those who serve, bearing up uh, uh, those in their care. And in our Bibles, again, we follow, do we see verse 28? The Son of Man, chapter 20, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, even on his coronation day, ladies and gentlemen, chooses service as he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He's not lording it over those in Jerusalem on a war horse. No, Philippians 2 verse 6, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, even on the day of his coronation. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, Philippians 2 is reflective. He does it to himself. He humbles himself. Others don't do it to him. He makes the decision to serve. It's right at the heart of Christian identity. The servant of all is to be the epitaph on all of our graves. And indeed, on Christian Explored, when we're talking to people who've just come to faith about joining churches, we say, if you don't see leaders serving, leave the church. Don't stay. We follow Jesus who chose to go to Jerusalem. So do you trust him? He chose to get on a donkey. Do you trust him? 
He chose to wash the disciples' feet the night before he was going to be murdered. Do you trust him? He chose the welfare of others and the glory of God. He chose to be betrayed by a kiss. He chose to be sold off for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, fulfilled in Matthew 26. He chose Gethsemane. He chose to be unjustly tried. He chose to be mocked and spat on. He chose to be scourged with whips. He chose the cross. He chose the darkness as God's anger at my sin engulfed him. Ladies and gentlemen, do you trust him? What do you think he did for you? And so we need to stop and contemplate the staggering cost it was for Jesus to rescue us, his enemies, and to offer us peace. A peace that was so costly, it cost the gentle, humble king his life. For as we fly on in the plane five days to Good Friday, we see this man before whom cloaks were thrown and before whom Jerusalem came out, utterly alone, outside Jerusalem on a cross. And of course, if this is what Jesus is like, the king who's in control, yet the humble rider of a donkey, it prompts us to ask the Sunday school question. I'm sorry, this is such a basic question, I'm embarrassed to ask it, because some of you were asked it 40 years ago in Sunday school. But it's the same question, and it's the right question. Does he ride into my heart as king? I know it's for the kids, but it's for us too. And the crisis of leadership that we've had in the conservative evangelical constituency in England, where I am, is that there have been leaders who have decided, no, there's a certain area of toxicity where I will not allow him to be king, to the great disgrace of Christ. Well, before we answer that question, does he ride into my heart as king, we have to once more get back on the plane in order to answer this question appropriately. And we've got, as we close, a third great theme to understand as we come to this Palm Sunday story, and it's this, the king who will complete his victory. Let's have a look at 21 verses 8 to 11 as we look down. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then went ahead of him. Those who'd followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. What do we want? Judgment. When do we want it now? That's what's happening. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the name. What's his role? The prophet from Nazareth. That's his home. But is that all they see? And the words, of course, are from Psalm 118. Now, to understand them in this sermon series, could you please flick back to Psalm 118? It is a victory psalm. And if we're to understand the journey, we have to get it in place. It's critical. And... I don't think there are many bits of scripture that have been more misunderstood than this one in the entire Bible if we look back on Christian history. So here is this victory psalm. Do you see the verses I've pulled out? Verse 11, they surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Verse 15, shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Verse 17, I will not die but live. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So these were psalms that were sung at festival times. Uh, It's a bit like the last night of the proms. It's rousing, victorious stuff. But unlike the last night of the proms, which for those of you from abroad is done at the Albert Hall here in London, our sort of village hall for the nation, Psalm 118 is not mere jingoism. It's talking about the reality when God's king will come again. As we look down at the psalm quoted, Hosanna, which means save us. That is the great theme, save us. And Jesus will indeed fully and finally do that, ladies and gentlemen, when he comes again. So it's this psalm that Jesus quotes when he says to the crowd in Matthew 23, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about his return. One day he will return, but this time not in humility and meekness, not gentle and riding on a donkey, but as the victorious and glorious king who will crush all opposition fully and finally. So these are the verses that go with his return. I make no apology for them. For these verses tell us that a judgment is coming when all evil will be put right. I saw heaven, says John, standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. The armies of heaven were following him. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That is what's coming. If you don't believe it, see all that was predicted and has already come. That's how we know this is coming. Look at the evidence. And as Jesus comes victorious, as he comes, he will fully and finally put his opposition, all his opposition, to the sword. But the problem is the crowd on Palm Sunday wanted God to defeat their enemies, the Romans, right there and then. What do we want? Vengeance. When do we want it now? That's what they wanted. So they wanted Psalm 118 then. And the first crusade, 1095, if you read the Gesta Francorum, the deeds of the Franks, as they walked into Jerusalem and agonizingly put the city to the sword, they were singing Psalm 118. They hadn't had a sermon series like this on the way. I mean, it's desperate. What do we want? Vengeance. When do we want it now? The crusaders were the same. But you see, that crowd, that crowd in Jerusalem in 33 AD, had no sense of the story they were in, of the timing. They didn't know their Bibles. They could not see that Jesus had not come to lead Israel's rebellion, but to fulfill Israel's mission, that God had given them since he made that promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. 12 chapters into Scripture. That all the peoples of the earth would be blessed and that, Je- and, and that Jesus had to be the saviour of the world, not just the king of Israel. Chris Wright puts it very well in his book. If Jesus had allowed himself to be the kind of king the crowds wanted, he would never have been the saviour they actually needed. You see, Jesus hadn't come to conquer Rome. He'd come to conquer sin and death. And when it dawned on them that Jesus wasn't going to deliver Psalm 118 now, and destroy Rome now, they turned ugly. They want Jesus they want to destroy Rome, not to address their cherished sins and their superficial religiosity. So they don't, they don't want Jesus to talk about their sin. They want the Roman sin sorted out. 
And you see, unless we see that the plane hasn't landed yet, that we aren't home yet, we will find ourselves in a crisis of faith. Because we'll be saying, Lord, you're omnipotent. Why aren't you sorting it out now? We want your enemies judged. Putin, Al-Qaeda, the pornographers, the wife beaters, the bullies. What do we want? Vengeance. When do we want it now? We want Revelation 21 verse 8 now. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all the liars, they'll be consigned, consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But it hasn't happened yet. It's coming. We want heaven here and the hassle to end. But one day, one day, what a landing it will be. What a destination. No more COVID, no more conflict, no more climate change, no more hard feelings, no more misunderstanding, no more death, no more divorce, no more wars, no more refugee camps, no more ethnic cleansing, no more wheelchairs, no more rape. Lord, we long for it. We grieve, but we're not home yet. And crisis occurs when we don't learn the lessons of Hebrews 11. We can't wait and we don't endure. Now, in the meantime, we are to work. We're not just to sit back on the plane, like, say, in the dentist waiting room where you just sit and wait and no magazine is published before four years ago. We're to wait as we would on Christmas morning where you're running around getting sorted before people arrive. We're to wait and work and grow more godly. But the key is, who is this verse 10? He is the king who controls his destiny, the king who comes in humility, the king who will have complete victory. And the question is, can you see it? Do you see? The crowds in Jerusalem in 33 AD were blind. They couldn't see. And as we wait, we sing Psalm 118. We wait and we look forward to what will happen. So we say, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I'll exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And we wait and we work and we grow more like Christ. And we know that we can trust a sovereign Lord who comes gentle riding on a donkey. We can trust him. We let him lead us. Let's pray. If God was in control on Good Friday, he's in control today. A moment now to look at our troubles, to bring them to mind. And to ask God to use them to make us more godly. Lord, we tell you, we don't know what's going on some of the time. But we know you're in control on Good Friday. And we know where the story is heading. Father, please. Keep us faithful as we wait and as we work. Amen.